You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production. Can you believe it? We're already 10 episodes into the Early Doors Football Podcast with so many guests. Hey, I'm Dylan Kerr and it's been brilliant speaking to many, many guests in our first 10 episodes, including our chat with my old Leeds United teammate, Tony Dorigo, on this episode. But before that, it's time for... Highlight of the Week. Neves, Pedence, oh, they worked it well and finished off by Saiz. And Wolves do have a goal back. What a pass this is, defence splitting. What a ball from Pedence. And I tell you what, you're not going to have an easier finish. Pedence with a corner, Wolves smell an equaliser, is this the moment, Fabio Silva holds it to the back post, off the woodwork, chance for Kilman there, Traore, shuffling, scooping it in, and arriving at the back post is Dendorka, and they will force it over, Wolves fight back to equalise, late on, Eventful match. Will it have quite the finish? Deflected! It does! Ruben Neves completes an extraordinary turnaround for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yes, plenty of content as usual, but that was this week's highlight of the week. So, Dylan, you're back from your little loan spell with the Hollywood Balls podcast with friend of the show, Geordie Pete in Dubai. And I listened in and you were talking about being kept out of the lead side by a certain Tony Dorigo. So what I thought we could do is find out more about that from the man himself. So welcome to the show, Tony. And, and firstly, shall we start by you telling us what Dylan was like as a teammate? at Leeds? Well, that was pretty straightforward. It was a pain in the ass, to be honest. But um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think what um, when I arrived at the club, what was really apparent was that you had a really strong uh, group of players and you had uh, obviously a very good manager. Uh, they finished fourth in the table and there were one or two players brought in just to keep you know elevating the level of the of the team they had big ambitions uh, and, and i arrived from chelsea um and uh, you know slotted in at, at, at left back and um there were always going to be players uh you, you know kind of staying some will be leaving it's just the way that football you know the nature is and uh, and dylan was uh, was a left back and uh, i kind of jumped in and, and, and got that spot um, and as he will tell you uh, the first few years I just never got injured I just kept playing you know every single game uh, as soon as he left I think I injured I got injured all the darn time so uh, it's just the way that things happen but uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the group itself was a great, great bunch and even you know uh, Dylan obviously didn't didn't uh, play in the first team very much when I was there but the whole group and spirit you know was pretty exceptional and everyone was very supportive uh, you know whether you were in the team or out, and, and for me, that's the that really is a sign of a, you know a really good uh, squad, a good manager, and a good club. And and I know that Dylan's really keen to to jump in and sort of chat to you about your time together at, at Leeds and and what you're doing now. But 
before that, if I if I can, I was reading that um, obviously you were born in Australia and you you chose to play for England. You could have played for Italy as as well, of course. Um, is it true that before you you came to England, you you hand wrote letters to most of the top division clubs asking for a trial? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, I was. Uh... God, 14, 15 years of age out in Adelaide. Um, I had, at 15, I played for the men's team. Uh, the best men's teams in South Australia was Adelaide City. Uh, and that particular season, Justin Fashionu uh, came over and guest starred for Adelaide City. So a huge star. He just scored that uh, wonder goal uh, for Norwich against Liverpool. Um, and I picked his brain about, you know, all sorts of things. And I just wanted to, I wanted to, I suppose, progress and at 15, already reaching kind of the first team uh, in my in my city, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be something higher. And I thought, right, you know, where's where do I want to go? And it was England. You know, I just wanted to go uh, to England. I remember watching Match of the Day in Star Soccer. That's what we had down in Australia. These two one hour programs. I thought, right, I fancy a bit of that because we had, you know, five, six thousand crowd maximum. But to see 40, 50,000, I thought, yeah, you know, that's what it's about. And it was full time. So uh, I had a dream. And rather than, uh, than thinking, well, you know, where do I start? Well, just dream big, you know, go for the top 12. So I went uh, and wrote a letter to the top 12 clubs at the time. And Aston Villa actually won the league uh, that particular year. And uh, I got a reply from them, the only one that gave me a four day trial. So uh, I had this letter back from them. Four days, Monday to Thursday, so I didn't get in the way on a Friday of the, uh, the, the team tactics for the game on Saturday. Uh, I had a chance, uh, and that was it. And uh, yeah, and the rest is history. I, uh, I grabbed that chance. And just, just before I let Dylan jump in, and I have to do this because he's, you know, I have to kind of say, Dylan, it's time to stop talking. You've been talking for <laughs> like non-stop. And he listens to you? Surely yeah. not. He listens to me sometimes, some, not all the time. But um, I, I just... Um, just wanted to ask you, you obviously you play for Chelsea, you play for a, a brilliant lead side that included Gary Speed, of course, and it's coming up to the 10th anniversary of, of his death. And I just wanted to ask you, Tony, we, we hear about um, better support for players now, but do you think um, support for ex-players is at the level it, it should be? I think that's an interesting one. I think it always uh, will naturally lag behind. Um, I think there's there is help there, but you've got to go and and get it. And and now for the for the older players, you know, there's still uh, plenty of places you can go to get uh, you know various support. You know, for whatever it is, you know, financial, mental, uh, physical, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, it, it's taken a while to catch up. You know, it it really has. And um, I, I think back to right to when I started, uh, the PFA obviously are, are quite uh, you know, important, but you still have to go and, you know, ask for, you know, whatever assistance you want. But when I first started at 16, uh, they came and they, they advised all the young players that they would pay 90% of any uh, equipment cost. So you could do courses to, to learn whatever you wanted, but you could buy equipment as well. And uh, I ended up uh, being the first person ever that they funded to buy a computer. And uh, it was gigantic. It was like, you know, these big bulbous TV thing and it was black and white and uh, what have you. But uh, yeah, and they, they bought that for me. I did a, a business course. And um, so, yeah, you need to go and ask and, and it's certainly there. But for players that have retired, it is difficult because a lot of time, you know, you kind of feel very much left out and, uh, and forgotten. But, you know, they shouldn't now. There is, there is more there. But certainly 
uh, it's, it's a big problem because so many players uh, have various issues, you know, after they've finished, which uh, really haven't been addressed. But, uh, you know, no doubt lots of different organisations, not only the PFA, but others are trying to address that. And Dylan, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you now because I know you've, you've got so many questions and you want to have a catch up with Tony. So uh, over to you. Crikey. I, I was quite happy just listening to you two there for a change. <laughs> Usually I can't get a word in edgeways for Tom. He's not here today. But no, Tommy is brilliant. I don't, we, I don't call him Tony. We, we, we know him as Tommy. Tommy Duringo. Uh, how's he doing, Tommy? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm good. Do you want to know the quick story about that as well? Shall I tell everyone? Which is really annoying because there I was. I was actually injured uh, and pre-season I finally was on the bench at a game in Ireland. And uh, at the time I was the record signing. So the announcer comes on and says, as I'm warming up, uh, here he is, Tommy Dorigo, you know, 1.3 million. And of course, everyone's like rolling around laughing. I jump on the pitch. Everything's fine. But it was cemented in the dressing room. And that was the problem. Because the manager, Howard, says, Tommy, well done. I thought, you bugger, that's it. My name's Tommy for ever and a day. But anyway, yes, still, carry on. <laughs> no, I was, no, like I say, you know, people people now know, if we, you know, because I'm saying Tommy, and they'll probably think, why are you calling him Tommy? But yeah, no, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm honoured, and, it, and it's a privilege to always speak to you. You know, I haven't seen you for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, we, I'm in South Africa, you're in Weatherby. It's, it's, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, yes, I was envious um, for, the, for the time that we were at least together, but I wasn't really jealous. I was like, you know, I just wanted to play like you did. And like I said, you never got injured. You never got suspended. But we, we, you mentioned, uh, Mark mentioned Gary Speed earlier on. Both you and Gary were such an integral part of that Leeds United team like Mel and uh, Mel Sterling and Gordon Strachan on the right-hand side. You know, the compliment, you both complimented each other. I mean, what was it like, you know, playing, you know, you know, with, with Gary? What was it like playing in, 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 in that championship winning team? I, I think you know Gary Speed very well, as I do, and uh, an absolute dream, you know, to play with, because you had a player that could do everything you know he could dribble he could tackle he could shoot he could score he could head he could work you know up and down but more importantly he always wanted to to learn uh, and he would listen so as a left back you know sometimes you've got to get the player in front of you you know in the right position well half the time he would ask me where would I like him to go for goodness sake so you know you're not shouting and screaming and bawling at the player in front you know, he really wants to do the best that he can. And uh, as I say, you know, it was absolute, you know, dream to play with. Um, and I think you mentioned the, the other side as well, the right-hand side. I just thought the whole team, 91-92, had such a balance, you know, about it. And I, and I think it doesn't matter what game that was played against us, whether it was a physical game, whether it was a tactical one, whether, you know, it was is down to, to skill, you know, whatever the game produced, we had... Uh, I think an answer for us. So we could play physical, but my goodness, we could play, you know, technical as well. And that midfield, um, you don't tell them how to play. You just give them the ball and uh, let them go and play because, uh, you know, it really was impressive. And, you know, the two centre-halves and the keeper, you know, absolutely solid, you know, exactly what they were going to do um, and, and great pros all around. And then the big guy, little guy, you know, up top, 
Uh, and Chappie, I don't think, gets enough credit for, for what he did as well. He looked maybe not the most uh, graceful of players, but I tell you what, how effective was he? You know, and, and you know, it was just amazing how he would score goals, how he would bring others into play. And then, of course, you had you know the flying machine, Rod Wallace, uh, next to him scoring some brilliant goals as well. So I just thought, as a team, it had a, a great balance about it that could kind of confront any sort of game and, and do well. Well, I think, like, we, you know, when, when, you, when you went... Before we started, you talked about that that time out. It's, you know, I can I I I've taken that that three years, four, three and a half years that I was there. I've taken it to to a level that when I went to Reading, you know, I I took that same enthusiasm and that same energy that I had at Leeds United, not playing as much, you know, but playing regularly at Reading. And I took I learned a hell of a lot from yourself and from Mel. Um, you know, and and I took it to Reading, and and you know you were saying about you know having an understanding with, with with Speedo. When I went to Kilmarnock and Pat Nevin came, I was the left back. He was the jinky winger. You know, I I, I actually you know because I watched a lot of games. I didn't just sit in the stand and oh I hate this and I'm should I should be playing. And I actually studied the game. I watched the game. Watched how you played. Watched how you know the the, the back four played. You know, underlaps, overlaps, and I took it to Kilmarnock, and I took it to, I, I took it everywhere, and and, and I, I just thought we had we had something special at that in that 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 season that we were all together, we we're all a unit. You know, remember we used to go out to, I can't remember the Italian restaurant now. We always used to go to dinner together. We always hung out together. We would, you know, had drinks together. There was never any elitist no. players, never superstars. We were all kind of in this bubble and, and that's what I've taken out in my coaching career to get all the players together and in this little bubble that they all, they're all wanting the same thing which is to win You're exactly right and it's interesting because I do some um, uh, as well as all my commentaries that I do and ambassador work for, for, the, for Leeds United I also do um, some speaking engagements but more corporate speaking So and it's all about teamwork and understanding you know, what it takes to succeed and and making the best of what you've got and just uh, really maximizing, you know, your potential in lots of different ways. And I think the experience you had at Leeds uh, and other clubs are great, you know, building blocks and you put all them together uh, and you soon work out what works and what doesn't because you've seen a successful side and no doubt, like me, I, I was in a side that got relegated as well. So I've seen the other side of it and you know, uh, you know, what works, but I agree. I think that the time at Leeds was pretty darn special because the, you know, the guys around the place, uh, that's what made it so, you know, special as well. Like Chris Kamara was only there for a little while, but what a great attitude he had. You know, it's just incredible. Those sort of Glenn Snodden, you know, again, these guys are, are, are great guys and great to have around the squad, uh, really good pros, but we were all still rowing in the same boat. Okay, Glenn was never going to play, uh, but it, it was still... Uh, you know, there together, you know, with us all. So it was a pretty special time. Howard Wilkinson, again, you would have picked up, you know, a lot from him. But each and every club that you go to, uh, there's lots of things that you then, you know, kind of put together. But I think, um, yeah, certainly that time there uh, is a good example of what needed to be replicated. And that is, there's no doubt that you're playing for the team. It's not, no individuals at all. You know, it's the 11 and you need to make that 11 be 12 and 13. And that's what it's all about. And uh, I, I felt that every single player uh, in that, in the club, to be honest, you know, felt exactly like that. And, and yeah, Tony, so I, I just wanted to ask you as well about, um, you know, it wasn't just Leeds. You, you played in some 
uh, great sides and with some great players at, at Villa and Chelsea as well. Who were some of those, uh, you know, special players that perhaps were kind of unsung? People didn't see all the the real kind of hard work that they put in. They just saw the special moments. But who who were some of those really, you know, special players for you at Villa and Chelsea as well? Uh, I, I think for Villa, as a as a well, a fifteen year old coming across, I got into the first team at eighteen, and suddenly I'm playing with uh, well, the European champions as well. So. The team was kind of breaking up after that, and they had some incredible players. And for me, the one that stood out, uh, well, quite an absolute mile for me, was Gordon Cowens. Uh, what a player. Played for England, obviously, as well. Had a couple of bad leg breaks, which kind of, unfortunately, curtailed his uh, you know, abilities. But I tell you what, the, he had uh, ability in both feet. You know, he would take a corner with his left from the right and corner with his right from the left. And you could not tell, you know, which was better or which was worse. I'm thinking, my God, who is this guy? And he was skinny as a beanpole, but what great ability. But more importantly, what a great man, you know, and he was there. I would ask questions. He would have the answers for me and would help and uh, what have you. Unless it was on the golf course, then he wouldn't because he didn't like getting beaten. But uh, anyway, it was uh, that was Gordon Cowns at Villa. Uh, at Chelsea, uh, we had some good players, but we had... Um, issues off the pitch, let's just put it that way, uh, that, that really affected stuff on the pitch. And uh, I think like Dylan will, will no doubt uh, have learned, you know, it doesn't matter how good your players are, you need to all be rowing in the same direction. And I mean that by the team, the squad, the manager, and the owners of the club, you know, and if that isn't aligned, then welcome to chaos and you're not winning jack all. Uh, found that you know, really, really clear because it's hard enough to win anyway when you are all rowing in the same direction, let alone, you know, handicapping yourself. So uh, I thought of Chelsea uh, at that time, that's certainly what happened, but we had great players. You know, when you look at Gordon Jury, Scottish international, Steve Clark, who's now Scottish manager, who was at right back, uh, Kerry Dixon up top, you know, Pat Nevin, uh, Graham Roberts at, at centre-half, Eddie Dinsvesky, the Welsh goalkeeper, in goal, we had uh, some, uh, some really good players. And I suppose one of the highlights for me um, was actually scoring a, a winning goal at Wembley with Chelsea in front of 80,000 people. So that's always a dream, uh, always good. Um, and uh, against Middlesbrough, unfortunately, my missus supports Middlesbrough, which is quite funny. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so that was Chelsea. And, and of course, at, at uh, Leeds, you could take your pick from, you know, so many. But I'll, I'll probably, uh, one unsung, uh, uh, well, you may think it's unsung. I think he should have had a lot more uh, adulation. Uh, and that's David Batty. Um, of course, Leeds fans, you know, love him to death, absolutely, but from the wider footballing world, because um, I always, when you, when you go to the right people alongside them, the first person that right alongside me would be David Batty. He was uh, superb, and he really made everything else tick. You know, how did uh, Mac get, Gary McAllister get the ball? How did Strat get on the ball? How could Speedo go flying forward? Well, because Bats was there, you know, controlling everything and patrolling the, the midfield. So, um, yeah, I would say, say Bats. And, and Dylan, first... I, know, I know you want to jump back in, but I just want to ask um, Tony, um, you, you, through your parents, you could have played for, for Italy. Obviously, you were born in Australia, um, but you chose to play for England. Was that an easy decision to make? Did you consider Australia or Italy as well? It was a um, pretty straightforward decision to make in that it was impossible to play for Australia. Um, and I would have played for Australia. It's as simple as that. At 18, I got into the Aston Villa first team and the Australian Federation 
uh, asked me to play uh, in some World Cup qualifiers. And I just got into that first team. I played probably four or five games. So I was looking like I'm, you know, possibly there for the long term. But I'm only 18. I've just, you know, started out in my career. And Australia asked me to play uh, against uh, Fiji, New Zealand, uh, American Samoa. I didn't even know there was an American Samoa and some other country. So I, no disrespect to those countries. Uh, however, that was what Australia were up against. And then when I was so delighted, I went to tell my manager that Australia had rang me and they want me to play in these games and I'm going to be away for four weeks. Uh, the managers looked at me and said, are you kidding? You're going to play Manchester United at Old Trafford. We've got Arsenal uh, at Villa Park. And then we've got you know Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. And you think your football education will be improved by playing American Samoa. Uh, and not only that, I'm not letting you go anyway. Uh, that's the end of it because the international calendars at that point weren't aligned. So uh, I had no choice, basically. Uh, now you can go and fly to whatever country you know you want to. Everything is the same dates. Uh, then it wasn't, so it was just impossible. So unfortunately, uh, I thought, right, I'm gonna have to, you know, for my career, uh, stay with Aston Villa and, and get that first team position nailed down. Uh, I did, and then a couple of years after that, uh, England came calling and said, listen, uh, we'd like you to play for us. Residence, if you stay for five years in the UK, you then can be naturalised as a British citizen. Uh, then you can pick any country you want. Please pick England. And if you hang on, you know, we want to, to give you a cap. So uh, that's the, the road I went down. Wow. Well, but this is why, uh, we'll call you Tony. Um, this is why we do this, this, this podcast, because people, you know, they, they don't have an insight into into, you know, I'm just me. I'm, I'm talking to Tony Derigo. I mean, and, and, and now we're learning, you know, from a simple question, what people want to know in football. And, you know, when you're talking about the, the when, when you mentioned bats, I mean, if you imagine bats, um, I remember my first training session, he nearly broke my leg, you know, because I, I, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know my game, but I, I, I ran the ball around him and, and actually Speedo started laughing. And then the next ball, that Speedo passed to me. I mean, he, he literally, if I had to tip, tip my leg, uh, my foot off the ground, you know, it would have snapped my knee in half, you know. Uh, but that were bats. So, like I said, all these unsung heroes, Andy Williams, Carl Schutt, you know, yeah. Simon Grayson never, never played a game for Leeds competitively and then became, you know, successful and managed Leeds. You know, the, you know there's obviously Rocky, you know, God rest his soul. You know, he came to take over Gordon yeah. Strachan and Says, nah, you're not having my, you're not having my jersey, son, and and carried on playing. You know, you got Big Dave Weatherall, Big Newsome, Huggy Bear, and and Mamba, Chris what, uh, Chris Fairclough, who still looks the same to this day. He's ne he's never yet. It is sickening, Chris Fairclough. It is absolutely sickening. He was my roomie. So me and Chris, you know, and there I am, aging by the minute, and there he is, getting younger and younger yeah. and younger. But all those guys you mentioned, you're right, and and what puts all them together is their character. You know, they, they are top-notch pros. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a pleasure to be, you know, around that sort. But putting those that, that together uh, as well, giving time to, you know, produce something like that. I mean, I mean to, for, for me as a coach now, when I'm, when I'm looking at... Um, when I'm looking at back at you know my playing career and, and, and the managers I work with, or work for, or played for, 
you know, I, I, I used to, I used, to, I, I try and get that that camaraderie that we had, you know, and it's it's very very difficult when people, all Leeds did this, and we had we had Cantona, we had uh, Vinnie Jones, we had like so we had Cammy, uh, we had all these players, and it, it, it's just that that environment we had in that dressing room, that environment we had in training, it was hell training, especially pre-season. You know, it was good for me. I could run. You, you, you old and you couldn't, you know, you, you struggled. You were at the back always, you know, you kept trying to, but no, I mean, just, just having that, that, that team spirit, that, I mean, who can you imagine 1991, right? We, after, after the game, right? The players that didn't play, we had to run. We had to run around the Ellen Road. You know, we did a 12-minute run. Sometimes we did a 24-minute run, depending on what Michael Hennigan's mood were. Right? Now, if you look at the game now, at the end of the game, teams are taking the player training, uh, taking training for the ones who, who, who were subs or the subs that came on. You know, and, and everybody ridiculed Howard for his, for his mindset in them days. Everyone does it now. Everybody does it now, you know. Obviously, they don't run around the pitch like we did. You know, we, we weren't allowed on the pitch. But it, it, and, 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 and at the time, you know, you, you're in your suit, you're suited and booted, you had to get changed. Once you left the dressing room, we went into the dressing room, we got changed. And now it's, it, it's, it's like everybody's saying, oh, oh, this is great because we're doing, the, the subs are doing training at the end of the game. We did it, you know, in 1990, 91, 92. You know, we... we that was the trend. I don't think many other football clubs that I know, know the away team or any clubs that I, when I went to away games, I don't think any other team did what we did. Yeah, and I think it's the manager and the club itself, you know, has to be open to these uh, kind of new ideas. And we tried, you know, lots of things under Howard. Howard introduced, you know, various bits and pieces. Some, some did work, some didn't work. Uh, I remember going to, to Derby County uh, after I came back from Italy, had two years there with, the, with the, an old dinosaur manager in Jim Smith, but then a coach in Steve McLaren, who's this up and coming coach who was brilliant, but always was looking for new ideas. Then all of a sudden we had a sports psychologist. So Bill Bezik was at Derby County. Then we're using data. Suddenly cameras are on the pitch where we're getting this data and we were the first club to do it. And all this was, was brand new, but Steve McLaren, you know, is, had this foresight to think, hold it a sec, we can do things better here. Let's show the players, you know, in a different way. Now, of course, it moves on, but someone has to be that, that groundbreaker. And who would have thought it's at Derby County? And there I am having two years of it. I thought, wow, you know, this is incredible. And the sports psychologist, I'll never forget Bill Bezik coming up to me and says, Tony, now you are, you're one of the obviously most experienced players here. Could you just give me some insight? Who do you think I should be working you know, one-to-one -one with. And I said, well, firstly, it would be the goalkeeper. Now, Mark Poon was a six-foot-seven, gigantic, colossus, brilliant goalkeeper, until the manager had a go at him. And then he went from six-foot-seven to four-foot-three and stayed on the line. So I thought, right, first thing we need to do is work with Mark Poon. But secondly, it's the manager and the message that he sends and how he says it to certain people is okay, to others it's not. And Bill Bezik turned around and said to me, you know what, I have two one-hour sessions a week with Jim Smith, thanks. So already you've got a sports psychologist working with a manager, you know, for this messaging. So yeah, everything is new, it's always moving forward, but you need to open your mind to these sorts of things. 
Tony, no, we, uh, we're, we're out of time now, Dylan, I'm afraid. So, Tony, just want to say thanks ever so much for, for joining us. And I know Dylan was uh, looking forward to it. I, at one stage, when I told him that you were coming on, um, I thought I might have to sort of be like a boxing referee or something. <laughs> and, uh, initial reaction, but uh, there you go. But, yeah, thanks for, uh, for joining no, us. Not at all. The legend. Cheers, mate. Great to speak to you. And now I'm delighted to welcome Darren Saul, the manager of Yeovil Town. Darren, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, Darren, I'd, I'd like to um, start with a, a look back at your, your playing career. You've, you've had a lot of experience as a um, player in, in non-league, some big, you know, well-known uh, clubs in non-league, the likes of um, St Albans, Hemel Hempstead. Yeah. Uh, Chesham. Um, j just want to ask you, you've moved into management since then, but how have you translated um, what you did in your playing career into what you're doing now as a manager? Well, this is, <laughs> this is the quick route through because my playing career is very boring, it's very poor, um, and I take nothing into my managerial uh strategy or the way I work from from being a player which I think at times I think one of the biggest problems that top players have is that they have um, a real struggle to understand how good they were uh, and why everyone else can't see what to them seems so blissfully easy um, that for me is the other way around and and that's probably to the to the benefit of my coaching but um, the, the best thing I had in terms of uh, that very short non-league career, it was only five or six years, um, but the, be the best things I had was at 16 when I was um, released by Ipswich. Uh, I went into a college programme, which are now everywhere. I mean, the market's saturated with them now, but at the time, this was one of the first ones. Um, and within a couple of months of, of, of playing every day and training and I was playing for Richin's first team in what is now the Conference South. So at 16, when you're really kind of now being thrown in with men, you know, the struggles that I've had in my career as a coach or a developer getting young people out on loan to the Conference South, that's probably the, the best part of it all. So I was thrown into a bit of a, you know, a, a hot kitchen, really, in that sense. You were straight in with men, doing the things. I was quite a cheeky chappy as a... <laughs> all my life and um, and learn you know learn the old-fashioned way at times but um the other great thing about that that period was Chesham was Luther Blissett Bedford was Kevin Wilson St Albans was my one of my childhood heroes Steve Castle um and and so I Kerry Dixon I went and played for for a period uh, as a young man and um that 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 was brilliant that was absolutely brilliant and there, there was some brilliant I mean Kevin Wilson was Top, 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 brilliant coach, great guy, and should have probably had a longer football manager managerial career in the football league. Uh, and you, you then um, you went. I think it was from Biggles Wade. You went to Stevenage Borough Reserves, and and that was your kind of apprenticeship, if you like, in, in management. And then obviously that took you to um, the Stevenage first team. Um, mm. So going back to Stevenage Borough Reserves, I think. It, that's back in 2007. So, you know, it's only your um, management career, if you like, with, with um, first teams has just been Stevenage and now Yeovil. 
how was that how was that transition for you into management very very easy i mean i was as soon as i turned 17 i got my uefa b at 17 just for i was 18 so i was coaching sort of all day every day anyway by then by 18 so by the time i was i think it was 23 24 peter taylor gave me the reserve team job at stevenage and um it was pretty natural by then. It had been my job for five or six years. I had my A licence. Um, it, it wasn't... I was never really a player. I, I was I was never a player. This is why I, I made a real conscious decision when I left Lillyshaw with my A licence at a very young age. That I wasn't going to play anymore. I was going to try and concentrate on being a very good coach and not an average player and an average coach. Um, and what I wanted to try to achieve was by the time I was 35... And everyone else in my age group was um, retiring and starting their coaching journey. I wanted to be 10 years in advance because I've got no name, you know, no playing background. So I had to really kind of climb every, every rung of the ladder. But that was that period was easy. Peter Taylor was incredible, really supportive, always in the shadows there if he needed to impose himself. And, and that reserve team at Stevenage went on to be the team that Stevenage got promoted with from the conference and then into League Two from League One and then into League One playoffs. So um, it was a it was a good group to work with as well. But in terms of transition, I, I was more in that world anyway. There wasn't really a transition. And and that is that is a bit different, as you say, because we've we've already spoken on the show to um, you know, we, we had a chat, for example, with Matt Jarvis and, you know, he got yes. an injury. He, he was about the age that you were talking about anyway. Um, but he, uh, he finished up at, at Woking. He had problems with, with injury and, and that's the route a lot of, a lot of players take. So, um, just bringing you right up to, to date with, um, what you're doing now. Um, Yeovil, obviously one of the, the big names in, in non-league football. It's not only been non-league, of course, but, mm. you know, you're one of those, I think people would say, one of the big clubs in that division. And you've got the likes of, of Grimsby, Wrexham, Knox County, Dagenham yeah. and Red Redbridge. I just, just want to start by, you know, I've got to ask you about what's going on at, at Wrexham. And obviously it's kind of, Wrexham is sort of the non-league version of what's happened at the top end of the Premier League. You know what? What do what do you and um, you know the the players and, and other managers and the supporters make of what's going on there? When we obviously hear the rumours of wages and <laughs> we're all quite envious, but you know when you when you look at someone like Phil Parkinson, he, he deserves whatever he gets because he's had an unbelievable managerial career, won championships and promotions and playoffs and. It's been such a brilliant manager. So to have to be able to, for the division to be able to attract someone like Phil, obviously comes at a price. Of course, we've all got our value, um, but it just adds to the it adds to the quality. And I liken the National League to League One, not in its standard, but in League One you've got Sunderland, and you've got and they're good friends of mine, you know, John Coleman and Jimmy Bell at Accrington. So the disparity between the very top spenders and the very bottom spenders, I don't know if Accrington are the bottom spenders, but that type of uh, theory or model, um, that type of disparity means that, um, you know, the, the gap is huge and the gap is massive in the National League from, we all know Wrexham, but Stockport are a, are a club of affluence and, and because of COVID, how badly we were hit by COVID, we're, 
we're now in the bottom third of that division in terms of financial uh, resource. And, and you've got League One budgets right at the very top and you've got National League budgets right at the very bottom. But it's a, it's a brilliant division. Is anyone that thinks that the National League is a, an amateur division now is very much mistaken. It's a professional division. Like we've spoken about with Phil Parkinson, but Simon Russ going in at Stockport from Brighton. My job before um, Yeovil was in the Premier League with Watford. We're, we're looking at a calibre, a certain calibre now in that division. And um, it does make for some good games. I haven't had an easy game. I haven't had an easy game in two and a half years. I mean, it's been so competitive. And when it went to when it went from being called the Conference to the National League, that that was a kind of a, a rebrand in a way, wasn't it? It, it? Exactly what you said there, to um, I, I think highlight the fact that you know you you've got um, it, it's more sort of professional. It's it's a much higher standard now, and it, it's kind of got. It's almost like if you think back to the old days when you had you know Division One down to Division Four. Um, you know, I remember the old days of uh, following Reading and you mentioned Kerry Dixon, he was a Reading player, um, mm. obviously went on to have a great career at, at, at Chelsea. But um, that, that's what's happened with, with the National League now, isn't it? And it's, yeah. you know, how, how do you, um, when, when you've got a, a club like that, and obviously, you know, Wrexham is not the only one there. There are, as no. you say, clubs there with, with big budgets. What What... What else can you do? And perhaps, you know, tapping into the sort of experience you said from uh, and the mentality you, you've taken from your playing career and, you know, that focus on being being a coach. What what can you do to, um, you know, be... Bridge the gap almost. Yeah, be competitive in that division. Yeah. Well, w w what we've done this year through, <clears throat> through excuse me, choice and um, and a little bit of circumstance, financial circumstance. We've gone very very young, and we've got we've got the second youngest squad in our division, um, and 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 that's for like I said a couple of reasons. But I've been coaching. This is my twenty first season coaching professionally, and fifteen of that period, fifteen years of that period has been in development. And I've really, I the best jobs have always been coaching young people. And, and working with young players. So we've gone down that route to try and develop, to try and um, propel young people into a, into a, you know, a prosperous career, a, a career that is sustainable for them and their families. And, and we're going sheer, sheer on, on sheer potential and, and ambition and hunger and desire. And, and even at like, all those years I've been coaching as a manager in terms of age, maybe not in terms of games, but in terms of age, at 38, I'm probably still classed as a young manager. So it, it, I think we've tried to go down that way. And I would say my ambition and enthusiasm and thirst to coach and help young people is probably going to help try and bridge that gap. And we really do rely on the energy and the, the bravery of the young, sometimes the foolish and naive. But we're hoping that human endeavour, um, the, the fact that they've still got uh, an eye on the horizon in terms of having better careers, playing at higher levels. We're, we're hoping that that sheer sort of mentality will, 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 will bridge the gap financially. And then, and then you see how it goes. The, if you look at the teams that have won the National League in recent years, they're not huge clubs. Sutton United, not a huge club. Barrow, not a huge club. So these, these little clubs, in all due respect, are going up. <clears throat> and Grimsby and Southend are coming down. 
So little clubs are going up, <laughs> big clubs are coming down. And, and it's got to a point now where the National League is almost sandwiched primarily with Football League clubs, you know, and, and that's what makes it a, such a competitive division. And, and, and then the, uh, the obvious thing is that, that we only have one go up as champions and one go up in the playoffs. So it's, you can finish second a point behind the leaders and still lose to sixth place in the playoffs in theory. <clears throat> so it makes it a very competitive division. But we just hope that that kind of youthfulness, that energy, that athleticism, that drive, ambition, desire, we hope that kind of squashes the gap a little bit for us. And you mentioned about the ambition of the of the players, and it, it is now a proper platform and a, a springboard, isn't it? So uh, I know, for example, um, Max Kilman, I think it was at Maidenhead. Then, you know, all of a sudden he's turned up at Wolves in the <clears throat> Premier League. So you don't have to sort of go National League, no. you know, League Two or League One Championship. You, you can go, if you're good enough, because of the standard, the way it is, yes. those opportunities exist, don't they? Yeah, and, and 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 actually for us, it's more so the other way around. I mean, we've got a, a young man called Charlie Wakefield at the football club and he played in the Champions League under-19 final for Chelsea. So, you know, and he's needed, he now needs a platform where he's trusted, he's reliable, he, he has to play week in, week out, <clears throat> and he has to get a senior CV under his belt and a platform and a portfolio to his name. And, um, and sometimes it's that, and we've found actually that we've had more of those types than, than anything else. The, the other thing we heavily rely on is my contacts of this many years. You know, and we've got players on loan from Middlesbrough, players on loan from Cambridge, players on loan from Exeter, players on loan from Luton. They're here, they're everywhere. And because Yeovil is in such a remote spot geographically, you know, we have to call upon every every contact possible to try and to try and get the best player possible. But it's certainly tough. But if you know, if I was a young player, you, Yeovil is a real good <clears throat> springboard for you to start your career. My my assistant Terry Skiverton had Andros Townsend, Luke Ayling, uh, Stephen Corker, Ryan Mason. You know some really top ended up being top end players, and um, they started their senior journey in, at Yeovil. So it's a it is a hotbed for that that type of player. Uh, and last question for you for you, Darren. You uh, you know if I ask this question to the fans. They'd always say that they want promotion this season, but how would you sum up your your aims for for the rest of the season? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a little bit more complex for us now because the the, the size of the squad and the age of the squad. <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, and we have to be a little bit more short term and week to week and game to game sounds a little bit sort of. Um, common with managers but um, that was really uh, the, the first year I was there we had a team ready to get promoted and we finished fourth <clears throat> and lost in the playoffs the team the following year underperformed we had tragedy with our captain um, passing away so it was a horrible horrible season this year is a completely it's, it's like new ground really for everyone I still think that if we can turn the the year the calendar year in the top half and we can bring back into our team injured experienced players like Mark Little, Ruben Reed, Luke Wilkinson, the three most experienced players in the squad, then I think we'd have a really good shot of making that 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 playoff group. And um, that's what we're trying to work towards at the minute. All right, Darren, well, great to speak to you. Really enjoyed that and uh, wish you well for the rest of the season. <clears throat>
Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Now it's time for the latest in our series with former referee and brilliant referee, Keith Hackett. Here he's speaking to Mark Roach about another one of my old former teammates, Vinnie Jones. Was there a player or, or players um, that you remember from all your days as a referee, referee who gave you perhaps more trouble than most? I think generally, you know, I, I didn't have that problem. I didn't feel that I had that problem. So um, there wasn't. There, there were players who would, who would chat um, and there were players who you knew you'd got to keep an eye on. I mean, at that, at that time... Um, you know, you took Wimbledon as being a tough team to referee. Uh, Nottingham Forest had some pretty uh, handy players, but in fact was really well disciplined and probably the easiest team to referee at that, around that time. But, you know, you look back, um, Vinnie Jones, you know, had a huge reputation, but in a way he was a bit of a softy. Um, you know, I, he and I got on, I think. Uh, we, we, would, we would chat through through problems. But you remind me of a story of Carlos Alberto, the captain who had lifted the World Cup uh, final uh, for Brazil. And uh, I was on a guest referee on the North American Soccer League um, on my way from New York City to Giants Stadium. And we had to go under Lincoln Tunnel, but sadly, I'm in the car that's chauffeuring me to the stadium. Uh, but there was there was an accident in Lincoln Tunnel, and so we were just stuck there, not moving. And um, suddenly, my driver uh, gets out of the car and starts shouting and running to my side of the car, and um, and still shouting. And then eventually, he disappears. And I'm thinking, "Crikey, is this is the water coming in? Is there a hole in the tunnel?" But in reality. Um, he, he grabbed this bloke and um, and all of a sudden the door opens and uh, into the cab comes Carlos Alberto. Uh, he thought he was going to miss the match. The driver had informed him that I was the referee, so there was no problem. And he just calmly said hello and we, we sort of exchanged some words in, a, in sort of pidgin language um, as we made our way to Giant Stadium. You know, remarkable. But I've got to tell you that when I was about three, four hundred yards from the stadium, uh, I'd refereed there once before. Um, I suddenly realised that it wouldn't be good for me to get out of the, the cab with Carlos Alberto. He's instantly recognised. I'm not. Uh, so I got out and walked the 300, 400 yards to the stadium and everybody wanted to know what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't tell him the story until after the game. But, you know, those are, those are memories that um, make, make refereeing so enjoyable. And that's it for the current series with Keith. And he will be back in the new year with more referee insights on football. Now it's time for our weekly look at women's football with me, Sherelle Cassell. So let's start off with the Women's Champions League game last week. So Wednesday, Chelsea beat Juventus 2-1. Thanks to a late, late winner from Harder. Fantastic goal. Um, then on Thursday, Arsenal won 4-0 at home to Hoffenheim. Uh, Katie McCabe again, unbelievable goal. Arsenal have just been phenomenal this season. 
um, and they're a really pleasure to watch. So and I'm not even an Arsenal fan. <laughs> um, and there were some close games in the League Cup last week. So Liverpool beat Aston Villa on penalties. You know, Liverpool are in the Championship, Aston Villa in WSL. Unbelievable result there. Spurs winners 1-0 against Charlton. Again, a very, very close game. Charlton have really, really stepped up this year in the Championship. Wouldn't be surprised if they kind of nudged the win there in the Championship this league. Bristol City beating Reading. Massive result for Bristol City after being um, dropping down a league this year. So huge, huge result from them. And of course, London City Lionesses and West Ham also finished 1-0 in West Ham's favour. So really close games. You know, WSL Championship are getting really close now. It's really, really good for women's football. Then on Thursday, League Cup ties went to penalties. Sunderland beating Sheffield United and Manchester United needing a penalty shootout to beat Durham. And by the way, what a turnout for Durham. Absolutely phenomenal. Sold out. The ground was rocking. Unbelievable. Um, so it was a really fair play to Durham and, and their team and their fans. And we've got some World Cup qualifiers coming up this week. So we've got my country, Republic of Ireland, a host in Sweden. Again, I believe that's a sold out stadium already or very close to. So that is going to be an unbelievable game. Republic of Ireland are flying. Uh, pleasure to watch them. But yeah, big, big, big game against Sweden. Then Friday, Scotland are home to Hungary and then Wales travel to Slovenia. So some really, really good games coming up this week. And then, of course, we've got England host Northern Ireland. What a game that's going to be. You know, both, both teams get great crowds, but I believe England, just do they have a bigger fan base, of course, but I do think Northern Ireland are going to make it hard for England, even though England are at home. But again, fantastic game's going to be. And then as for my team, Portsmouth. Let's talk about Portsmouth. So, unfortunately, our clash with Southampton has been rearranged. I believe Southampton had a few call-ups, which I know two of those players um, quite well that are playing for Northern Ireland. And then, so we are now playing Hounslow, 2pm kickoff at Wesley Park. So it'd be great to see as many Portsmouth fans as possible down there. Um, you know, we have about 250 to 300 every week. Um, it'd be really great to, to get a few more, but, you know, our fans are great as always. Um, but yeah, last time we beat them was 11-0 in the league. So hopefully I can start making an appearance back now. Um, I'm kind of returning back to full fitness. I'm not injured anymore, which is great. So yeah, hopefully I'll be featured in that game at some point. Even on the bench, I'll be happy with. But no, so that's it for this week at Look at Women's Football. But join us again next week where we'll have plenty more results from this week coming up. And yeah, thank you very much. And now it's time for... Football fans from around the world. And I'm joined by Tom Nightingale, and Tom is an Aston Villa fan in Toronto, in Canada. And Tom, I'm going to start, as I usually do, by asking you, why Aston Villa? So it's an interesting run, really. It's, for me, it's not a family thing. I was born and raised in Birmingham. Um, neither of my parents, Villa fans. So I think it was just a combination of factors, really, like friends at primary school. Um, there was really something about the kit colours for me and the name. I don't know why, just a really really appealed to me and then um, they were the first team I watched on TV uh, went down to Villa Park a couple of times when I was very young first two games I saw were nil nil draws didn't put me off somehow um, and then the third game I saw was a 3-2 win over Coventry which I'm sure Villa fans will remember and that um, came from 2-0 down won it in the last minute and that sort of hooked me really and, and the rest is history. 
Well, um, next question is about, um, you know, best memory. I guess that's one of them, but have you got a, a best memory in the time that you've supported Villa? I mean, that certainly was. Obviously, that was the first big one, really, was that Coventry win. Um, I think for me, there's, you know, there's a few I could choose from. I was I was lucky enough to be there at uh, Old Trafford in 2009 when Villa won at Old Trafford for the, in the league for the first time in, I think it's about 26 years. And until a few weeks ago, the most recent time we'd won at Old Trafford. Um, and then the, the, the other one I'd say probably is... Uh, European night we beat Ajax 2-1 at Villa Park under the lights 2008 I think it was and that was um that was my first real taste of Villa in European football proper European football no disrespect to the Intertoto Cup um and we beat them 2-1 and it was just you know absolutely electric so that, that's probably one that stands out for me um and then and just another one is the, the FA Cup semi-final win over Liverpool a few years ago um all these games that really stick in your mind you know and also, um, you, you've probably got a few favourite players, but if you could pick one in, in the time that you supported Villa, who would that be? Uh, if I could pick one, I would probably say uh, Paul Merson, mainly because he was Villa's real sort of showman player um, at the time that I was really getting into sporting Villa around about the turn of the around about the turn of the century. Um, and he just sort of he had magic in his boots, really. And he was one of those players who draws the eye and you know gets crap gets gets the crowd on their feet. Um, so I've still got a soft spot for Merce, really, because he played. Uh, he, he was one of the players I think hooked me in. And then I'd say, if we're talking about one, from the, if I can talk about one from the current squad, I would say probably uh, John McGinn at the moment. He's because he's just the kind of character and player that I think every fan would loves their team to have, really. Um, so those are probably the two stick out. And uh, Jack Grealish, what, what are your thoughts about him leaving? Listen, I mean, it was obviously it was painful. Um, the main reason I think it's painful is that he represented, I think, for, for most Villa fans, that ideal of not only is he your clearly your best player, he is an incredible talent, um, captain, but, you know, Villa fan, a great grandfather, I think, won the league and the FA Cup with Villa back in the 1900s so you know Villa sort of uh running through his blood and I think he represented that ideal for a lot of fans that you can say no to the money you can say no to the trophies and stay with your club get the statue outside Villa Park that sort of thing so obviously the the, the exit um was painful I think with hindsight we were kidding ourselves a little bit but one thing I will say is I think that we've shown enough this season already Villa to show that in some ways we're better off without him I think we've got a more well-rounded team don't have to focus on him so much on and off the pitch. So, you know, you sort of have to weigh it up. But the the, the pain, I think, for me certainly is uh, in the rearview mirror now. Uh, and on that note, you mentioned about the the team now. Uh, what position do you think Villa will finish in this season? I think the the potential is there to push for a European spot. You know, maybe maybe push into that top seven or eight. More realistically, I think we'll probably finish similarly to where we were last year. Last year, we were 11th on, I think, 55 points. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar thing. I'll say 10th. Okay, Tom, well, thanks very much for your time, as ever. Um, like to invite you back on later in the season and, and see if uh, your prediction's on track. Sounds good. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. And I'm joined by Simon Runeberg who's a Burnley fan near Oslo in Norway. And Simon, can I start by asking you why you started supporting Burnley? Do you remember the game uh, championship manager, nowadays football manager? 
it started there. I got tired of winning everything with the big teams, Monaco, Juventus, Real Madrid. So I wanted to try a new team. Uh, it had to be in England, among one of the four divisions. And I went by the name and color. I didn't get that far on the list, as you presume, B. And uh, I got interested in Burnley. Won everything, of course. Uh, I had to cheat a bit. Um, started to read uh, on the history of the club. Uh, got to know the club and uh, follow them ever since. So it, uh, it started with a game. Um, <laughs> what's your what's your best memory as a as a Burnley fan? It has to be the victory against uh, Blackburn in 2014, and uh, at Ewood, and uh, the victory over Manchester City in 2015 when you got promoted. That was uh, fantastic. And who have been couple of your favourite players for, for Burnley in the time that you've supported them? Uh, Ian Wright in uh, 2000, uh, Kieran Trippier, I'd say, um, and now um, in the latter years, I'd say Ben Mee, Mr Burnley himself. And also a, a word about the manager, because he, he's uh, been a big part of the, the success. What, what are your thoughts about him? Well, he deserves a he deserves a statue outside the stadium. That's for sure. He's a living legend. Uh, but also, because he's been there for so long, um, the team has gotten a bit predictable in a way, because he rarely changes the uh, the first eleven. The tactics are often the same, and well, it's a blessing and a curse in a way. But uh, well. I'm somewhere in between, I must say. I love him and also I'm a bit frustrated once in a while. <laughs> OK, well, finally, where do you think Burnley will, will finish the season? To be honest, I'm a bit worried about our survival this year. I must uh, be honest. I really hope Sean Dyer's manages to pull it off and save us once again. But uh, we are a bit predictable. Um, as I said, and the teams around us have, in a way, cracked the Burnley code. And uh, in a way, we never seem to have a plan B. And that's, uh, that's worrying. I hope we survive, but uh, I'm worried, to be honest. Okay, well, Simon, great to uh, have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. And um, Cheers. Thank you. hopefully we'll get you back on later in the season to see how that works out. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on early doors at forthenow.co.uk.